This is Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. Fiction and nonfiction, graphic novels and more, we're here to help you find something great to read. Hello, welcome to Books and Nachos, the Venganza Media podcast about all things in print. Stuart in L.A. here, and for the second week in a row, I am checked into the Bates Motel, talking Psycho 2. Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, 1960, was a huge phenomenon. I've already discussed this with Arnie and Brock over at our sister podcast, NowPlayingPodcast.com, our fall donation drive. We talked Psycho already, and writing the success of that is Robert Block, even though he was only the author of the source material, did not have any involvement in the making of the Hollywood movie, Robert Block becomes a Hollywood screenwriter because Psycho, the movie, becomes a phenomenon. I mentioned that he lived 40 miles away from Ed Gein in Wisconsin. He moves, he goes to Tinseltown, and for 20 years becomes a very successful screenwriter. He continues to write for Hitchcock on television, Alfred Hitchcock Presents, The Alfred Hitchcock Hour. He also writes horror movies and thrillers. Uh, William Castle, a famous shockmaster of his day, had commissioned and produced a few of his scripts, one of which I remember really liking. I haven't seen The Skull in a long time, but I remember it being this creepy, atmospheric film about the skull of the Marquis de Sade. And he wrote that. He wrote several other things. For 20 years, he has a very successful writing career, making screenplays, as well as continuing to produce short stories and award-winning novels. Congratulations, he took the success of Psycho and made himself even bigger from it, which is not true of everyone. I think that we saw that Anthony Perkins and some of the other people involved got typecast, and maybe it wasn't great for their career. But for Robert Block, it's only a bigger horizon. It only makes sense that Universal would look to him when they decide in the early 80s that it's time to make the sequel to Psycho. They're going to make a movie, and Robert Block is going to write a screenplay. The twist ending to this is that it's rejected. Universal ultimately decides they want to go a different route than what Robert Block is proposing in his screenplay. They hand it back to him, and he decides to refashion it into this novel I'm reviewing today. In 1982, one year before Psycho 2, the movie, comes out, we have the version, as conceived, unrealized on screen of Robert Block's continuation of Norman Bates' story. Why didn't Universal go with him? I mean, why wouldn't they want to be attached to the Robert Block franchise and name? Well, I think on one hand, his concept was just ahead of its time. What he proposes here in his story is that Norman Bates is going to escape the asylum and go stalk Hollywood itself for exploiting his life, that they're producing a schlocky movie called Crazy Lady, and that it's probably no better than a lot of the slashers from the early 80s, exploitive and gross, and mischaracterizes him. And so Norman's going to go stalk the director, the actress, all of that. That's where he was going with it. And I think that might have been a little too pomo. You know, in the 90s, we really liked that. We scream, you know, it was a franchise that really thrived on the fact that it played off of movie versions of serial killers as well as their real life counterpart. 
Here in 1982, I think many people would just rather go see a sequel to Halloween or Friday the 13th and, and not think that hard, not be so challenged by the concept. I also think that once they decided to go with Anthony Perkins, once he signed on to do the movie sequel, he wouldn't have been interested in how minimal his part is in Robert Black's conception. Because although it starts with Norman Bates escaping the asylum, ultimately this is not a Norman Bates story. The Psycho 2 novel is about 60 pages longer than the original novel. Only the first 60 pages are really concretely about Norman Bates escaping the asylum. After that point, the characters from Hollywood and other characters from the asylum become much more important. And we're not even sure, we don't even see Norman except in little bits and pieces for much of the rest of it. I can't imagine that Anthony Perkins would sign on to do a Psycho movie and then only guest in it. To, to do a cameo would be completely demeaning. That said, I cast Anthony Perkins in this story. Even though last time the book told me that this was a 40-year-old fat guy in glasses who looked nothing like Anthony Perkins when he killed Mary Crane, I do think that Robert Block is writing a sequel to the movie. It doesn't have a lot of visual cues. It doesn't do a lot to remind us of what was different about his novel from the movie. I do see it very much as if you wanted to conceive that Fairvale is back in California, if you wanted to think that it was handsome Anthony Perkins in this role, there's nothing on the page to contradict that. Just as Thomas Harris must have known when he wrote Hannibal that people were going to imagine Anthony Hopkins, I think Robert Block knows that he's stuck with the movie as in his reader's heads. He's got to just go with that. And that's probably why he wanted to make it about the killer confronting Hollywood and the movies. At the start of this, it's very similar to the original Psycho story. We begin with Norman. He is surrounded by books. He is reading. He is alone. He is waiting for a woman to arrive. He's not back at the Bates Motel. That is gone away. I hear that it's even in shambles. It's mentioned in passing that the Hollywood production can't shoot on location because there's almost nothing left of the Bates Motel. Norman is still locked up, and I think that's the way it's going to be. Unlike the movie version where he's actually released back into the public, this Norman is here for life. He's not getting out, but he is, well, if not cured, at least transformed. He no longer suffers under the delusion that he is his mother. He no longer exhibits symptoms of being homicidal. He really credits one psychiatrist for helping him embrace reality, Dr. Adam Claiborne. They basically used hypnosis. All the other doctors wanted to give him electroshock therapy, drug him, restrain him. This guy wanted him to talk wanted to put him under and have him tell his story again and again until it became normal and naturalized and he could deal with all the things that he repressed and projected onto other people, namely his mother. So at the start of this, mother is truly dead, Norman is alive, working in a library, in the asylum, out of the blue, an attractive woman arrives, wants to ask him questions, reminds him of a bird. This time it is a nun. It's Sister Barbara. Her habit, black and white, 
He keeps calling her a penguin. Even though she's devoted her life to Catholicism, she formerly was a psych student. She specifically come here to interview him. She's accompanied with an older nun who was just giving charity to the asylum and is a little miffed that her new protege isn't following her around. But she goes off, is introduced to Norman by Dr. Claiborne, and then it's quickly taken out of the picture, much like Mary Crane was in the first novel. Here, there's very little of Sister Barbara before she's naked and dead, and Norman is putting on her habit and escaping in the church van. He kills the fellow nun. He's on the run. He's trying to get away. I never quite reconcile the fact that he supposedly cure and doesn't think he's mother. Mother was the homicidal impulse, and now that he doesn't have mother in him, we're sure of this. He still is going to kill and still going to go to these extremes to escape into a world of uncertain future. I mean, what's he going to do with the motel is no longer there. He never went out and explored the world before. If he was always a man that was was reading and not doing, I don't know why staying in an asylum and reading all day and being in charge of their library wasn't a better life for him. But whatever, it's the conceit. It's why we're here. Let's face it, as readers, we didn't want to read 190 pages of Norman doing just fine. We want him to go psycho, and he quickly does. At least up until this point. And here I really do want to put out the spoiler alert. I always spoil every novel that I read. I feel like it's understood by the audience. But if you have any interest at all of reading Psycho 2, I think you should stop this podcast right now and go do that. If you want to know what I think of it, not very good, but I can understand your curiosity. The story hinges upon one twist, very much like the original twist, in which our idea of who the killer is radically shifts at the end. I'm about to say who the real killer is. The shocker, it's not Norman Bates after this point. Yes, Norman killed two nuns to get away in a van, but the crimes that are committed in Norman's name from this point forward, we will find out at the very end, are not Norman Bates' crimes. Robert Block thinks he can do it again with Norman Bates being mother and Norman Bates in this story being his psychiatrist, Dr. Adam Claiborne, will kill. The time that he spent with Norman and invested in Norman makes him feel that once Norman escapes, his own career is on the line. And so he needs to believe that, I don't know, it's, it's not really even clear or linear. What we will learn by the end of this is that he was going to write a book about Norman, and because Norman failed him by killing again after he was supposedly cured by Claiborne, Claiborne then goes psycho. I mean, a shrink at the end says Norman couldn't let his mother die, so he became her. You couldn't let Norman die, so you became him. Norman crashes the van shortly thereafter, burns up on the side of the road, and Adam takes up the claws. He imagines that Norman is still out there and that he can stop him. He anticipates what this psycho Norman will do so that he can then go and try and prevent it, although he doesn't. I mean, should be pointed out, the next victims of this are Lila and Sam Loomis. They got married. They're still at the hardware store in Fairvale, and we believe that Norman catches up with them and slaughters them there, although... What we'll find out is that, in fact, it is the psychiatrist, unknown to himself, in a split personality himself, killing them and then coming to the crime scene and saying, oh my God, 
Norman did this. Is that gimmicky and bad? Yes. I, I think that's ultimately why Universal said, you know what, let's not make this movie. At the end of the day, this concept just kind of stinks. It's not really well disguised either. I mean, I think it becomes pretty clear to the reader that Claiborne is acting highly irrational. He's seeing Norman where no one else is. It, it reflected in mirrors at the grocery store. And, you know, he just becomes paranoid and is convinced based on no evidence. He thinks that Norman might have seen in a newspaper headline that they're making a movie about him in Hollywood. So he buys a plane ticket, flies out to California, and then proceeds to insert himself into the production. They give him a personal consultant job so that he can tell cast and crew alike that Norman is going to show up at any minute and kill them. If only he would. But what's crazy is that most of the rest of the story is completely bloodless. It is mostly about Robert Block sharing his experiences about being a screenwriter. He can't dish on the Hitchcock movie. I don't feel like he really is telling us a behind-the-scenes tale of how Psycho was made. But in general, he's just telling a sordid Hollywood tale about, well, you know, the man that's playing... Norman is a big macho film star, but is secretly gay, and how is he going to rectify that? And, you know, he's getting older, so he's required to transition into more actorly challenging parts, but is maybe doesn't have the gravitas. You also have the woman playing Mary Crane, who is basically feeling like Mary Crane. She's getting older, and if she doesn't become a star soon, it may never happen, much like Mary was worried about if she didn't get married soon, it may never happen, and she'll live alone. And so she is doing everything she can to make sure the production gets shot down. With Norman, quote-unquote, on the loose, the studio is considering stopping the making of Crazy Lady. Maybe they should read the script, but but this the idea that the real killer is out there, that this business is not finished, has them considering shutting down. And so we have the actress playing Mary Crane. Her name is Jan Harper. We have her seducing anyone that will have power over this decision and convincing them they need to make the star vehicle that she wants it to be. Claiborne checks into a seedy motel that's run by a former old Hollywood star who is very dismissive of today's slasher films and the sex and violence that are in films. A large amount of time is devoted to how today's movies are not as good as yesterday's. And again, I think that may be why Universal took a pass on this. They didn't see a commercial value of selling a slasher movie to kids in which no one gets killed. Large amounts of time are devoted to saying that Hollywood sucks, telling them the entertainment they crave is not as good as what it used to be. That's just not going to fly. That they even want Claiborne around, being ranting and crazy. I, I think they see legitimacy in him. The reason why they give him this production consultant is because he worked so closely with Norman. And even though the asylum has said, no, you had no access to him beforehand, now they have a guy who knew him very well. Of course, the guy playing Norman wants to pick his brain, learn how he can play this character. The actress wants to keep him happy so he doesn't have the production shut down. We have the screenwriter who wants some insights. They see value in Claiborne, even though we don't. We're wondering, where's Norman? Why don't we have Norman Bates? He was such a central part of the novel and the movie. The fact that he has disappeared for the 
next hundred pages, more than hundred pages, it raises our suspicions very early to what they're trying to do here and the cheat of the fact that Norman is dead. He has been dead ever since he wrecked the van and that Claiborne is wrong. Claiborne thought that he picked up a hitchhiker and used that as a fake out to say that that was his body that burned at the wheel, that he is really out here in Hollywood running around you may not have figured all of that out, but you know there's something wrong with Claiborne, and you know it's very, very suspicious that Bates is not around, and that nothing's happening. I mean, okay, the set burns down, and a stray cat gets killed, and maybe Norman is spotted in a local grocery store, but by and large, nothing really is bad enough that's happening to make them shut this production down. We don't get a death again until the last 20 pages where the producer ends up beheaded and the actress is rehearsing the shower scene with her creepy director. We're told that he is into S&M and debauchery and has fallen on hard times. He used to be a big shot and now he's making splatter films. Claiborne, really tapping his hand, says that he now looks like Norman, that he shaves his mustache, that was his trademark, and now this director looks identical to Norman, and that means that because he looks like Norman, he must be acting like Norman, and that he may harm this actress. I mean, come on, this guy, clearly, the shrink is psycho, whether he's a killer or not. Maybe you didn't know, but I think it's pretty obvious long before the last three pages where that identity is revealed. And we have a very sloppy wrap-up trying to explain to us why he had this psychotic break. I don't mind sharing Hollywood Wins, the movie that Universal actually makes that is called Psycho 2, far superior than Psycho 2, the novel. I don't think that there's much good here. Even for a pulp story, I think it's pretty silly. Embarrassing. Gimmicky is the word that I kept coming back to. The original Psycho transcended the gimmick of it being a transvestite. Here, I feel like it's just all about having you think it's Norman so they can pull the rug out from underneath you and say, no, it's the shrink. Should you read it? I don't know. I think it's an interesting comparative. You can join us over at nowplayingpodcast.com and donate and hear my thoughts on Psycho 2 the movie. If you see that movie and then read this book, I think it's a richer experience. But no doubt about it, I'm going to share my bias. Psycho 2 the movie, much, much better than this. And if you're just looking for a good continuation of Norman Bates, this ain't it. Don't read this book. But Robert Block is not done. There is a third and final, I do believe, official Psycho sequel on the page. And I will be reviewing it in two weeks. I'm going to take next week off because Arnie is going to be here on Books and Nachos with the first review of our Stephen King retrospective. As you know, over on NowPlayingPodcast.com, we're going to be doing all the movies in the Carrie series. He is going to be reading Carrie, sharing his thoughts. I hear it's an epic podcast, and I can't wait to read the book and follow along with him when that review comes out next week here on Books and Nachos. I will be back the week after to discuss the third final Robert Block psycho novel, Psycho House. So until then, keep reading, and I'll talk with you soon. Thank you for listening to Books and Nachos. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes, and you can catch back episodes at our website, booksandnachos.com. 
The music for Books and Nachos is The Right Prescription by Chai Weapon, which can be downloaded at podsafeaudio.com. Books and Nachos is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2013, all rights reserved. Music